Hello, and welcome to episode lucky number 13 of the World Teacher Podcast. I'm Gareth Manning, and I'm pretty excited about this episode. My guest is Daniel Nettle, one of the world's best behavioral scientists. He graciously agreed to speak with me about his work and advocacy for advancing the idea of creating a universal basic income, or UBI. Now, this is a topic that tends to polarize people, but it really shouldn't. It's actually a pan-ideological idea with strong proponents across the political spectrum. Democracy Now! and the Financial Times have both pushed for it, for instance. And support for UBI is maybe the one thing that Cornell West and Milton Friedman might actually share in common. Nonetheless, it's a topic that tends to elicit strong emotional reactions. It can be quite triggering for people. I seem to have deeply upset strangers on Twitter by merely mentioning it. But given the extremely polarized sociocultural and political environment we find ourselves in, I think it's important to examine big ideas that we can use to potentially bring people together, to build bridges across difference, and ensure that everyone's basic needs are sufficiently secure. I see a universal basic income as potentially just such an idea. To be honest, I'm not fully sold on it myself, but the more I learn, the more it seems very much worth trying. Some of the best arguments I've heard for UBI come from today's guest, Dr. Daniel Nettle, who brings a rather unique perspective to the problem as a behavioral scientist. I invite you to listen to him with an open mind and an open heart. Maybe you'll agree, maybe you won't. That's all good. But what is utterly certain is that Daniel is not, in any way, a radical leftist maniac, an ideologue, or a demagogue. To the contrary, to the total contrary, he is one of the most careful, nuanced, honest, open, and genuinely truth-seeking people I have ever met. I really recommend his recent book, Hanging on to the Edges, Essays on Science, Society, and Academic Life. I seriously couldn't put it down. It's brilliant, beautiful, erudite, spot-on smart, and frankly, hilarious. Read it, and you'll see that Daniel Nettle screams intellectual humility from the rafters. This is a man who publicly practices and models what we all should. He tries his best to understand the world. But when he makes mistakes, which are inevitable in the course of scientific discovery, he does the right thing. He admits when he's wrong, and then he changes his mind and he keeps learning and growing. Imagine we had political leaders like that. Daniel Nettle is a true scholar, a true scientist, and a truly exceptional human. This is me chatting with Dr. Nettle about universal basic income. So, Dr. Nettle, thank you so much for coming on. It's quite an honor to meet you, and I really appreciate your time, especially during this really difficult context that we're in under COVID. You're a behavioral scientist, and a very, very excellent one, I would argue, and I think the academic world recognizes that. And as a behavioral scientist, you look at the world in a particular way. Hmm. One of your assumptions is that we really need to understand the organism in its environment as a starting point. And when we are talking about humans as the organismic sort of entity that we're, that we're examining, our environment is social and it's complex. And I think that it's changed quite importantly in the last 40 years under conditions of neoliberalism. And I'd like to talk to you about universal basic income and your arguments for it. But I think the neoliberal context is also important. Um, how would you explain what neoliberalism is, how it's become culturally normalized, and what the impacts have been with respect to inequality and insecurity in particular? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, for what neoliberalism is, you know, there are historians of politics and economics who can give a better answer than that to me, but I see it as the kind of privileging of a particular model of how successful uh, human relationships are organized. That's the model based on the idea that, um, you know, uh, interactions are transactional and that, that if each side looks out for its, um, for its profit, into whatever profit is, um, then everyone benefits, right? The famous Adam Smith invisible hand. So, you know, so for example, that, that, you know, taken to the extreme, what that would say is things like um, government services shouldn't, should be um, privatized and because the most efficient way of generating them will be there'll be a private corporation that's incentivized to provide whatever it is 
and you as citizens can choose ideally, you know, I want my water from this provider or that provider or that other provider. Um, and by, by creating um, competition among those providers for my business, we make the whole sector more efficient. And I, as the consumer, you know, I'm a, I'm a sort of sovereign chooser. Can you know, I don't like this provider? I'll switch to this other one. And and neoliberalism, I see, is the idea that everything works in that way. You know, don't like your university? Well, let's just have a competitive, you know, sector of corporations of universities. And you don't like this one? You go choose another one. And the, you know, uh, the bad universities will go bust, and the, and the good ones will then you know will improve, and so on. So it, it's kind of been the argument that everything works in this way. That there should be no domain which is public and civic. Um, uh, I mean, in, in this country, we see it lots of, um, lots of our basic utilities have been privatized, so there isn't like a municipal power company or a municipal water company. You know, instead, every consumer can choose between many, many corporations, actually, which will end up largely providing the same thing and all end up making suspiciously high rates of profit. Right? So there goes the theory that competition by consumers would drive the rate of profit down. So th that's the ideology. Um, what effect has it had? Well, I can talk to that more psychologically than economically. I think that um, what it does is put people in a mindset where everything is very individualistic and the kind of metaphor, you know, everything becomes like shopping for a bar of soap, right? Yeah. You know, don't like this relationship, choose this other one. It's slightly cheaper or slightly higher quality. Or, you know, don't like this school. You don't like this town, go to this other one, it's a bit better, you know. And so we end up as these kind of atomic consumers, mm. atomistic consumers. And that's sort of fine for certain things. I mean, if I want to buy running shoes, you know, I should go to the people who are selling the running shoes at the best price, you know, for the highest quality. I get that. But there are other domains of human activity where we kind of need to solve it in a slightly different way. And that could be, um, you know, climate change, how to provide decent public spaces, how, you know, how to make people feel secure and happy, um, how to provide trust and um, inclusion. Uh, and also, you know, that kind of neoliberal world works pretty well for the people at the top of the heap who've got the most choice right, and the most kind of capacity to choose. But it, it tends to generate a lot of inequality. Market outcomes do, for all kinds of reasons, do tend to exacerbate inequalities. And there's an unsolved problem for what to do with the people who are kind of ending up at the bottom of the pile, right? The people who don't have much choice because they don't have many resources mm -hmm. or the people who just can't really afford to participate in some of these things. You know, what do you do? How do you kind of cope with that? And I think every advanced society is dealing with that. And actually, COVID has just made it more acute, right? It's just more obvious we've got this problem. Mm -hmm. yeah, for COVID for me has actually kind of indicated the end of neoliberalism because there are no neoliberal solutions. Mm -hmm. Every country has turned it to real socialized action, whether that's governments bailing out the economy, governments writing checks to all their citizenry, um, governments nationalizing certain things and nationalizing the testing effort and introducing kind of collective restrictions. That's sort of the opposite of neoliberalism, what governments have had to do. So that's been quite interesting, really. Yeah, absolutely. One of your key arguments is that neoliberalism creates both inequality and insecurity and that it's really insecurity uh, with respect to our psychological needs or basic human needs that kind of really matters uh, when we're trying to understand how the world is changing. And, and you go a step further and argue that insecurity, which we can see through all sorts of forms, but in particular poverty, can be measured as aging. Mm. Could you please explain that? That's ridiculously interesting. Well, yes. So, I mean, one of the things that people in public health have known for a long time is that all over the world, the poor die sooner and they get sick sooner. So it's even more than them dying sooner, their bodies start to wear out sooner, right? They start to have all kinds of age-related diseases, whether that's diabetes or uh, cardiovascular disease or you know, mobility problems or all these kind of things. They, they have them sooner, right? And you, in a way, people have said, oh, that's very interesting. Why would that be? And But I actually think one definition of well, let's call it socioeconomic adversity rather than poverty, just to keep mm -hmm. our terms straight, is actually, is it, is it, it is that which ages you, right? Because if you look at almost any society, you know, who are the people who are living longest and who are the people who are in best health until, you know, close to the time of their death? It's the people who are kind of the bottom, the top of the heap, right? So you can almost use um, 
what happens to our bodies over time as, uh, as a sort of metric of what our social system is doing, right? And it's sort of interesting because you can see health inequalities, you don't see a lot at 20, but you see a lot at 40. Mm. And you see even more, uh, by 60, people have started to die and the poor have started to die. So you really, of course, see them in a big way then. But it's, it's interesting that even in midlife, when no, not many people in the population are dead yet, you can already see big inequalities in health. You know, who's got the diabetes? Who's got the mobility problems? Who's got the you know, limiting illness or the, um, you know, the, 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 the respiratory disease or whatever? You know, it's, it's the people who've had poor and stressful environments. So we can use that as a real kind of, you know, a better number than GDP is how is your population doing? And, and the answer is, for example, for the US, you know, GDP growth has really decoupled from life expectancy growth. Life expectancy growth is stagnant. And for some sectors of the population, it's going the wrong way. You know, and I think that tells you a lot. Yeah, I, I think it's a very important phenomenon to understand. Productivity growth has gone up massively since the 1980s, while real wages have either flattened or declined in many places in the, in the Western industrialized world, and that's problematic. Real wages, meaning inflation-adjusted wages, but when they figure that out, when they calculate these things, it's with consumer price indices, right? They're not taking into account housing price inflation as part yeah, of that. So right. when they're actually measuring these things, the situation is significantly worse than it even looks on paper. Mm. And I think that's really important to recognize. Um, before we get into like what you're arguing as a set of possible solutions for this, I'd like to go into the idea of poverty as aging a little bit more. You study oh. this, so it can be understood epidemiologically, right? We can look on a population level and understand these things as, as observable phenomena, but you also do this as a behavioral scientist by studying starlings, <laughs> yes. which are birds and like the yes. impacts on their genes. And then you're able to make this inference to humans. That's, please explain this. <laughs> well, so we study birds partly by convenience, um, uh, you know, that we have access to them, they're, they're a good system. And birds are very interesting because they, they live a long time for their size, right? Um, uh, so a starling weighs about 75 grams and it can live for 20 years, right? So if you think about it, you know, pro rata, I weigh whatever, several thousand fold what a starling way. So, you know, pro rata for my body size, I ought to live, you know, about 100,000 years, you know. <laughs> so they're, they're kind of long lived, but they grow very fast. So um, a starling has to go to being basically full size in 12 days, right? So okay. you got you kind of set this bird up really rapidly and then it's got to live a really long time. But we've known for a while that birds are very susceptible to um, little variations in how much stress or how much nutrition there is in those 12 days have a massive impact that affects their longevity, you know, years down the line. So it's a kind of model, if you're interested in how might bad stuff and impoverished environment um, affect, uh, you, you know, the, that very long-term outcome of the, of the aging process. Um, we also know that, that, you know, there are lots of there are lots of known factors in birds that affect their longevity, like the, the quality of the season they're born into, or whether they were the, uh, the runt in the nest, so the little one that had to work harder, that turns out to affect their life expectancy. So it's actually a great model for understanding some of the things that might in humans be changed by social factors. Plus, of course, you know, they're an easy animal to work with. Uh, you, know, you, you can manipulate the developmental environment, they live in captivity, these, these kinds of things. So that's why we've been studying starlings. And I think it's, you know, it's, pretty, it's a pretty interesting parallel. People think, oh, well, humans are a mammal, so we ought to be studying you know, rats or mice. But actually, rats or mice, they're not designed to live very long. Right? You know, the, mm. A mouse lives a few months in the wild. So th these are not animals that are set up to live for many years, which humans are and starlings are too. Okay, that's very, very, very interesting. So how do you actually measure uh, how deprivation gives rise to aging through starlings? Well, we've been measuring it through something called telomeres. Um, I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. But the so telomeres are the caps on the end of uh, your chromosomes. And um, they're made of repetitive sequences of DNA. And as your cells replicate over the course of your life, they get shorter and shorter because every time there's replication, a, li a little bit of telomere is lost. So um, you don't die because you run out of telomere, but your telomeres do get shorter and shorter as your mm -hmm. life goes on. And we've known that for, for a long time. And there's some evidence that in humans, 
having a more stressful life is associated with your telomeres being shorter, right? For, you know, for your age, for your chronological age. Um, uh, now, and, and birds have these too, right? And it's actually easier to study them in birds than in humans because um, birds have nucleated red blood cells, so they have telomeres in their red blood cells, which uh, mammals don't. Um, and we've shown in a couple of experiments that if you if you stress starlings in very early life, it, it accelerates the shortening of their telomeres. Now, at, so that we thought, great, this is a wonderful model for how bad stuff that happens to you from the social environment, you know, ends up making you age faster via this mechanism of, of this um, this telomere loss. It turns out actually that telomere loss is a really bad marker of aging, but we didn't mm. know that when we set out. Oh, there interesting. Yeah, there are, there are better ones. I mean, it was. I think the idea is philosophically a good one. Just telomere length is not. It's turned out not to be the right marker of aging. And the reason for that is that although telomere length does change with age, it doesn't change very much. And actually, the differences between individuals in the length of telomere they start out with is many, many fold larger. So, you know, I might have 8,000 base pairs of telomeres and you might have 4,000. doesn't mean you're going to die in half the time, you know, uh, mm -hmm. like twice as fast as me. It's just, it is a... It is a marker of age, but it's a poor one. There are better ones I think you could now study. Um, but the idea is the right one, I think, to study some marker of aging and how that's affected by the stuff that happens to you, particularly early in your life. Very interesting. I was going to ask you, what do you think all teenagers should know about telomeres? But instead, <laughs> I actually think I'll ask you, what do you think all teenagers should know about the relationship between stress and aging? Well, yeah, that's very good. So, you know, I've got a study at the moment having become a little disillusioned with, with telomeres because as I say they're not a very good marker of aging mm -hmm. there are some better ones based on the methylation of your of your genome that's that's the way your genome uh, the DNA bases don't change but they get um, they attract uh, sort of chemical groups on them that change their expression as you get older so that may be a better marker but you know we've got to study at the moment what's the best marker of aging it turns out just asking people how old do you feel and, and asking other people, how old does this person look? They're really pretty good markers, right? They're very sensitive. So, you know, we do all this highfalutin laboratory stuff, but you know, you know when someone's been devastated by life, you can kind of look at them and see. So actually just asking, how old do you feel? Because people are very good at reporting their, their bodily states, actually, it turns out. Um, if you ask people, you know, how long do you think you're gonna live? They, they, they get it surprisingly good you know not when they're 20 but by the time they're 40 they can tell you you know i don't think it's going to be so long or, you know i think it's going to be a long time um so actually you know what's the best marker of aging it might be really simple things like you know how physically fit are you how young do you look and how young do you feel which is interesting isn't it we do all this posh lab work and maybe things like that are useful but what i would tell teenagers is um uh well Maybe it's their parents we should be talking to, right? But um, mm. th this is no mystery, but the social environment affects the body. And you know that, you know, if you meet people, you know, where I live is a, is a very deprived post-industrial area. You meet people who've, you know, been economically insecure, um, been economically marginal all this time. When they get to 50, you can see that. You know what I mean? You can see. Absolutely, I know what you mean. Yeah. And, and you don't have to be a genius here. I mean, you don't have to be the most brilliant sociologist. You can just go around the city, a city that has big inequalities. And I think mm -hmm. you'll see what I mean. And so what I would say, not so much to teenagers, but to everyone is, if you want to have big inequalities that mean that the people at the bottom end of the income distribution are perpetually stressed and insecure, then we're going to have these kinds of health problems. It's not a mystery, mm -hmm. right? And, and in a way, we, you know, we, we're always searching for the marginal gain in some sort of genomic medicine or, um, you know, uh, psychopharmacology or whatever. But there's some basic public health here, right? If you want to have a society that's very unequal and, and that gives a very, very limited opportunities and, and a lot of stress to the people at the bottom end of the distribution, I can tell you, you're going to have problems of depression and anxiety and age-related disease and cardiovascular disease. It's just going to happen. And, and in a way, you don't need medicine to solve that. You sort of need politics, or will be my, my view. And, and, and we're, we're nervous of politics in our day and age. Everyone mm. says, oh, medicine, spend more on medicine, do more medical research. You know, of course, that's fine. It's important. But actually, there, there's some old-fashioned politics here 
You know, yeah. there are choices about what kind of society we want to be. And I think if you get those upstream choices right, you know, my view is some of the downstream problems would actually get a lot better. Couldn't agree more strongly. I think I think you're absolutely correct. And I think it's really important to also look at ideas and issues and possible policies that we can use to make the world a better place across ideological divides Absolutely. and try to avoid like the, the party politics, I hate you, us versus them kind of dynamics that are going on in the world right now. And I think are increasingly worsening uh, in some respects. Um, I mean, the, the protests in London uh, in favor of QAnon is just absolute lunacy. Um, let's not talk about that. Let's talk instead about what I think is a pretty good idea, and you have a really interesting case for it, uh, to help with insecurity and inequality, which is universal basic income. Yes. It's really interesting, I think, to talk to a behavioral scientist about this rather than a political scientist. How is it that you have come to be a proponent of this, and what is your case for moving towards a universal basic income? Well, um, I, it, it's a long journey, actually. It comes to work I do with my friend Matthew Johnson, who is a political scientist, and I suppose one way into this, which is maybe a little bit of an unorthodox way in, is, um, is to think, what's a good health policy? Right, as I said, we've got all of these problems, really expensive public health problems. People are depressed and anxious and addicted and have cardiovascular disease and have all kinds of problems that mean they can't work and you know, they need all kinds of social assistance. And you think, well, what's a good policy? Well, you could provide lots of um, counseling. Right. And you go, okay, well, fine, but what's upstream of the counselling, <laughs> right? Well, well, what is it that would be, because the counselling is very expensive, right? And it's hard to deliver. And you think, well, what would be upstream of that that would sort of mean that you didn't need to get to the counselling? Okay, mm -hmm. well, what would be upstream of the counselling? And you think, well, maybe it would be some sort of, you know, improving the community in some way. You go, well, fine, but why did the community get dilapidated in the first place? What's upstream of that? And you keep going upstream and you sort of say, look, what, what maybe seems to be at the root of this is, substantial fraction of people whose lives you know who feel they can't depend on having adequate things in life you think well how on earth how on earth will you deliver how can you deliver that that seems really expensive you think, well yeah but all this healthcare and stuff is pretty expensive anyway right so you know and, and we already mm -hmm. give people through tax allowances and old age pensions and unemployment relief we do transfer a lot of resources to people already it's just sort of hard to do it in a timely manner so that rather than them needing to fall into destitution, have all the stress and problems, and then us come along and in some way figure out that that's happened probably inefficiently and probably bureaucratically, and then kind of rescue them out of it. You'd say, well, what if there's just a flaw, right? What if there's a flaw that you just can't fall down? Mm -hmm. And I suppose, so I started thinking of that as a health policy, you know, how expensive would that be compared to, say, building more hospitals or having more psychotherapists or having more psychiatrists? And you think, well, it's pretty expensive compared to that, but actually psychiatrists are pretty expensive too, and hospitals are pretty expensive too. So yeah. when you start to think about it in that way, let's think of this as a health policy. I think it changes your lens. And um, uh, uh, it, it's sort of interesting because there have been some experiments with universal basic income. For example, there's one in Finland um, it's a complex story and it's been sort of misreported in various ways, the, the, you know, the way this, this trial went down. But um, a lot of people said, uh, oh, it was kind of a failure because we thought what it was going to do was um, lead to unemployed people. It was unemployed people in the trial um, being more likely to get into work. And it didn't. It had no effect on their probability mm. of getting into work. Right? People say, oh, it was a failure then. You think, well, yeah, but... How did they feel? They felt much better. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, if you change the lens and say this wasn't a, an employment policy, they were no more likely to go into work, but they were no less likely either. It just didn't have any effect on that. But they felt much better. <laughs> Is it good to have us, you know, a lot of people around who feel much, much better? And while we have examples of, of, of uh, trials of the policy, the thing that they consistently report is people are less stressed, right? And that's, that's pretty important. I've also got this intuition that, is, um, that this comes back to something you, you said earlier, which is that a lot of the problem of being deprived is to do with not knowing when you're going to fall under the, 
fall under the, you know, yeah. into the emergency. I, I think it's a psychological insecurity. Absolutely. It's a psychological in, in, insecurity. But also, once you fall, you have to do things like borrow money at really exorbitant short-term rates. You often lose your house. And then it's really expensive to get back to those things. Yeah. So the amount of money that you need to kind of get rescued when you fall through the floor is much less than the amount you probably would have needed to just keep you off the floor in the first place, you know, mm. it, it, because simply because once you've lost your house, once you've had a nervous breakdown, you know, once you've become addicted, it's really un expensive to undo those things. Mm -hmm. But maybe, just maybe, this is a hypothesis, not a fact, the amount you'd need to stop you falling through would be less. So wouldn't that be interesting, you know? So, so anyway, I think that this is a policy we ought to think about. I think it has philosophical difficulties. I think, it, I think it's a difficult thing to sort of sell to people. But I think particularly this pandemic has made us feel that the world is so unpredictable. And actually, we kind of need to take collective social actions. And we're really rich societies. We've managed to create staggering things, you know, testing infrastructure and whole new hospitals and stuff in a matter of weeks it's really uplifting in a strange way this pandemic because what it showed us is collectively we can do things right it's the real yeah. counter example to the neoliberal inequality will be with us it's the inevitable outcome of market processes governments can't afford to do anything else because when things really got bad in the last year governments were able to do other things we sort of rediscovered what government can do and it can actually yeah, I mean, it's been a terrible pandemic and governments haven't solved it, but they've been really effective at doing things. Yeah, I th and I think that's really important. I think there's a very important parallels between governmental policies now and uh, the impacts or possible impacts of a universal basic income. So, for instance, in Canada, where I am currently, the government has rolled out this package called CERB, C-E-R-B, I forget what it stands for, but it's basically $2,000 Canadian dollars a month for anyone who needs it. So that's not a universal payout, but it is one that has been rolled out efficiently. You don't have to stand in line. People get it relatively rapidly, and it creates a lot of safety and security for people. I have very good friends, for instance, who are artists who are like, this is fantastic. This, I'm, I'm making more money now. This is actually better. I can go and do my art more easily because they're very used to living poor and, yeah. they, and they've kind of figured it out. Um, but for other people for whom this has been quite a shock, uh, for people that I know who were living a better life and have had their employment at risk, the, even though they're okay, financially, the relative drop itself, like where they were and their expectations and then where they ended up and then the fear of where they might go, which doesn't have to be rational, itself is hugely problematic. And my intuition, honestly, is that one of the problems with UBI, and I'm really curious about your uh, take on this, might be that the proponents are arguing for an amount that might be too low. And, and so I think, because you just said that I might be wrong. So I'm curious, what do you think about this? And the reason I think this is because $1,000 doesn't cover rent. So like if, if the amount that we're going to get as a floor is supposed to provide me psychological safety, shouldn't it be enough to at least cover my basic needs of like rent and food and things yeah. like that? And if not, then it, 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 will it really work, do you think? Well, I think that's, that's a good point. And I think that there are different camps within the UBI movement from the kind of don't scare the horses, introduce something that's quite small and they kind of mm -hmm. see what, you know, okay. when we see that the world doesn't end when we do that, you know, maybe people will become more susceptible to the kind of, you know, there's no point in doing this unless you go big. <laughs> that's the other, mm -hmm. there's two philosophical things. One is introduce a low one, it has no real benefit. Everyone says, why are we doing this? To the introduce a high one, it's just such a massive demand for social change that, you, you know, and I, I guess I've, I tend to fall somewhere between the two. Um, housing is a huge problem right, throughout the West. Housing has just become incredibly expensive. And actually, that, that, that almost needs addressing in another way, right, to understand mm -hmm. why that has been the case. And often it's bid up because people see housing as an investment. Right? So in this country, the reason, a big part of the reason for our high property prices is people buy housing as an investment. They don't buy it to live in. And, right. and they, those people, those people hold a lot of capital and they're able to bid up the prices. And I, you know, I don't know what we do about that. I think it's a difficult problem. So, so there is a, I mean, I agree with you. There is a question about housing. Um, I actually personally favor the view that um, 
even a relatively modest UBI might have a big impact on average well-being, not because it helps everyone, right, but because there's about a quarter or a third of the current population for whom it will make a tremendous difference. Mm -hmm. I don't, your people in the middle, so people like me, you know, I'm a university professor, so I think, you know, I, I have a very good salary. People like me really doesn't, does nothing because I have a very good and very secure salary anyway. And the way you would have to do it is give it to me each month and take it away from me as well through the tax bill, which I'm perfectly fine with. I'm perfectly happy to say, have it taken away. I don't expect to be made any better off by this policy. And there's a bunch of people at the bottom end, your artist friends, for whom this will be transformational in my mm. view. Even a relatively small amount, because they're living modestly, as you say, but just knowing they had that street, steady stream, you know. And there's a bunch of people in the middle who are perhaps the case you're describing that I don't, you know, I don't know that they'll make a huge amount of difference to them. And they might, they might be a bit kind of so what about the whole business. But I just, I think when you look at the distribution of well-being and of health problems, they're really concentrated in that bottom third. So if you can do mm. a policy that, you know, as a stroke really helps them, and actually liberates them to do interesting things with their lives, like invest in their human capital and become artists and do other things, which I, you know, and, and be unpaid carers and do all sorts of stuff, which I think is socially mm -hmm. important. I think that's a win. And if for the other two thirds, you have to give it to them, but also then take it away through their tax bill. So they're just where they were anyway. Well, people don't get that. Like, can you just repeat that if you don't mind. People don't like, so one of the key arguments is like, why should the rich people get a thousand bucks a month? We take a thousand bucks more of them in tax, right? So they're exactly mm. where they are. So at the moment, for example, in this country, the first 11,000 pounds of what you earn every year is a thing called the, the, the personal tax allowance. You don't mm -hmm. pay any income tax on that, right? So it's, what you could do is, is instead of giving me this personal tax allowance, you could take that tax off me and give it back to me via this other mechanism of universal basic income. It would have no cost at all to the exchequer. They're just, instead of saying, Daniel, we want, you know, tax on your first eleven thousand pounds. They just they take that tax anyway, and then they just feed it back to me. Now, what on earth is the point of that? You say, what's the point of the state taking this money off me and then just giving it back to me? Well, the point is, what happens if I lose my job? Mm -hmm. That's the point, right? Right. This month, it makes no difference to me, right? If if you w whether you don't take it in tax or take it in tax and then give it back to me, it's the same. But the month I lose my job, or the month that there's a terrible COVID pandemic and you know, or everyone gets fired, or the month that I have to give up my job because I'm caring for a sick relative, under the UBI thing, it still stays there. Whereas under the other system, suddenly I've got nothing, I'm destitute, I'm stressed, then I have to go clawing for some means test benefit, which takes, you know, a couple of months to kick in, and that time I've got myself into trouble, and my electricity's been cut off, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so my scheme, although it seems kind of crazy when people are doing well, skip you know it comes into its own when people experience unpredictable adversity mm. i think that's very interesting it's also very complex and complicated and i think when it comes to selling the message of ubi getting lost in those details is a very kind of hillary clinton kind of approach that doesn't really work um maybe you talk but, but a lot it is, but is it, i mean i agree with you but it's important people have this intuition right that money mm. is a um Money is something like some sand you have in your yard. You know, I've got a, I've got a heap of sand. And so, you know, the sand will run out, right? Mm -hmm. and, and actually money is not, it's a system of accounting for who owes what to whom. That's all it is, right? You can't run, the government can't run out of money, right? Money is a sort of social convention about who owes what to whom. And we're just talking about um, the reason it is important to describe these cases, even though, they, as you say, they're a bit sort of complex, is you've got to get, away from people's intuition, they go, oh, there'll never be enough sand in the yard to do all that. It's like, well, the sand's all there. We just got to decide how it gets kind of moved around. Mm -hmm. you know? What do you think would make UBI more uh, politically pal palatable across the political spectrum? Because it is very interesting. Like we have different moral intuitions on the left and right predispositionally, right? And also yeah. because of our cultural messages and so on. And people on the left favor UBI for certain re redistributive reasons. And pe but people on the right, I read the Financial Times every morning because I want to try to understand how they look at the world. They argue for this, and they have been arguing for this for decades. Milton Friedman argued for this. So yeah, this yeah. is a pan-ideological argument, but I don't think it, I think it often is a little bit sort of in the clouds. It's very difficult. So how do you, how would you suggest with respect to our cognitive biases and intuitions that we might try to make this more palatable for just, so for somebody who doesn't have the time to really think about this in the same level of depth and complexity? So I, 
I think actually this, what's going to do it is the situation. Mm. And, and the way maybe um, I've been very interested through this pandemic that, um, you know, people have seen the mayhem. People can't go out of their house. Government can't work. You know, all this stuff has been happening. Um, that, that if people, if enough people see how difficult it is, how complex our existing systems are, and how much simpler it would be if you just had a, you know, right, all we need is a system where every citizen, you know, has a, an account. And things like this exist in most countries to a greater or lesser extent anyway, whether it's a national insurance account or, you know, some sort of social security account or something. You know. Every citizen from the day they're born have an account with society in which society, you know, pays in stuff like, you know, I would say universal basic income and eventually an old age pension and, and takes out stuff, right, like to, you know, taxation and so on. And I think ultimately, when you really explain to people the baffling complexity of, I mean, our tax system is totally incomprehensible, right? And sure. so many, you know, if anyone tried on to purpose. engage in detail, yeah, on purpose, actually, because that means you can change tax rates in really cryptic ways. No one really notices. But right. we have this thing called national insurance, and this has four classes, and you pay different ones according to, you know, how who you are and whether you're self-employed and then you have income tax and that's subject to various allowances and deductions and stuff. It's remarkably complex. The only reason we don't notice the complexity is mostly we're just going about our daily lives. So it's mm. in a way, if you just said, look, think of the thousands of people who are engaged with coming up all the, with all this stuff and, and, and administering it, you know, <laughs> think of what you could do if you could just sort of simplify that very substantially. And the old thing of simplifying red tape, I mean, that just works across party lines. Everyone loves yeah. that. Really does. Everyone loves that. Yeah. I, I mean, it, so in this country, it's interesting you say that UBI is a thing of the left. In this country, that's not so obviously true. Mm -hmm. um, I think many people on the left have been suspicious of it because they, really? yeah. So I think the UK Labour Party, there's a very active debate about it, but I think there's been a sense that um, actually UBI would be regressive compared to what we have now. We have quite a generous welfare system and that people who want to introduce U UBI, maybe the subtle agenda is to also actually reduce transfers to the poor. So introduce something really minimally, you know, really minimal that everyone would get, that the overall effect you know, would actually be a, a lesser transfer than the means-tested systems we currently have. Now, I don't think that's necessarily true. And even if it were true, I, still, I personally feel that would be justified if people were happier and better off, which me is the bottom line, right? The, mm -hmm. That's the bottom line. You know, do they, are they happier? Do they have healthier lives? And if they do, then I think it's all good, rather than actually you know, computing the sort of amounts transferred per se. It's, it's the effect of those transfers mm -hmm. that's important. But, so it really matters that we test this experimentally in a real life. It. Yeah, but the, I mean, the problem with that, and I'm working on that at the moment, mm -hmm. the problem with that is that you can't do a little test because the whole grandeur of the policy yeah. is when it happens at a, a community scale. So taking 50 people and saying, we'll randomly assign you to get this for three years, it's not gonna cut it because A, everyone knows the three years is coming up. So that's, that's not the same as having lifelong security because you know it's only a short trial. And also because a lot of the deprivation I'm interested in is community-wide you know, yeah. in certain scales or certain neighborhoods. So if you'd randomly chosen 10 people out of that neighborhood to get the intervention and the other 90% didn't, mm -hmm. then you're going to be underestimating the transformative effect of that policy, my guess is, because the multiplier is going to come when everyone in the street has got that security, not just the people at number one, number five, and number seven. You know, right. you really want to see what happens. So you need a government that's brave enough do it. Actually, I do need two governments. One is brave enough to do it and one is brave enough to not do it. <laughs> <You've been compared laughs> well, we got a lot of the latter, so that's yeah, okay. So maybe that's not the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really quite curious. Let's say we did like a Kickstarter campaign. Let's give Daniel Nettle a billion dollars. Yeah, and it worked. What would you do with a billion dollars? Very curious because there are billionaires out there and what they yeah. seem to do is yeah. like hoard so, their money or invest in, in new things. But, so, that, so there are people who are doing this. So there are some Kickstarter things i know that there's a there's a um experimental scheme in massachusetts is going to happen i think there's one in california so people are doing this kind of thing really and this isn't my idea 
Uh, so I thought I just made this up. Okay. People have been there before. People are thinking about this. I mean, it uh -huh. really is very much a topic of public debate. And for, I don't know all the details of the experiments, but they are happening. Um, I think where I might differ is I think that the standard way these experiments are happening is they're randomly assigning individuals to get this kind of policy or not. And I think that's great. It's a lot better than nothing. But I would like to randomly assign whole cities to get it or not. Because as I say, I think that the multiplier happens. You know, I've, I've done a lot of work in a, in a very deprived neighborhood of a particular city. And a lot of the problems of uh, kind of low social trust and paranoia that you have there, are because even if individuals who are living there might be okay, they don't know that their neighbors are okay and they don't, their neighbors might be desperate or whatever. So just randomly assigning at the individual level would be okay. But imagine if you could take a whole neighborhood or a whole city and say, for a decent period of time, we're going to introduce a universal basic income here and then measure the outcomes at the community scale, not just individuals' health, but you know, how much they trust each other, what the crime rate has done, um, is the environment littered, are the windows broken, you know, all of those things that social scientists care about and really measure those at community scale. Now, that, sadly, that means you need to have some cities that don't get it as well. Right? So that's an unfortunate side effect of, of doing science, but I think that's the way to do it. And I think, you know, in as much as people like me are committed to evidence-based policy, that's the sort of stuff we need to do. I think it'll be hard. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be hard because when you try and do big experiments like that in the social sciences, then people will say, oh, you know, they got it, why can't we have it? Or there'll be a change of political wind and, the, you know, the thing will be abandoned after 18 months, which is too soon. You know, there are all these dangers. But I think, give me a billion dollars and, uh, you know, I'd do that, definitely. Okay. I don't have a billion dollars, but okay. if I ever get a billion dollars, I might just give that to you because I think it'd be interesting and worthwhile yeah. to find that out. Yeah. I'm really, I, I find it very interesting. I, you're the first behavioral scientist I've ever spoken to in real life. And I honestly love your work. I think it's really, really interesting. And one of the things I find most fascinating about it is that it's interdisciplinary. Hmm. And, and you speak really intelligently, I think, about the benefits and detriments of an interdisciplinary approach with respect to knowledge building and science and, and, and social science and applied behavioral science. Well, how would you describe the advantages and disadvantages of taking an interdisciplinary approach to understanding things? Well, um, I mean, that's a great question. I think in the end, So in the end, we must be interdisciplinary because disciplines don't exist, right? They're sort of cultural conventions. Mm -hmm. The world is just the world. <laughs> and we've got to understand it. And so the idea that, you know, I mean, you know, I'm a biological entity in the sense I've got cells and blood and, you know, hemoglobin and those kind of things. Those are pretty biological kind of things. But I'm also a social being and I'm influenced by, by my culture and stuff. So, you know, in the end, if you've got to understand me, there can be no disciplines, right? You, this is, they, all, all, of the, all of them apply. So, so that's the sense in which we have to ultimately be interdisciplinary, but that's very different from saying every individual has be, to be interdisciplinary. And there, mm. I think it's just the classic thing of, of a trade-off, right? Would you, um, you know, is it better that there be carpenters who are wonderful at carpentry and glaziers who are wonderful with glass? Or is it better that every artisan can work a bit with glass and a bit, of, a bit with... <laughs> With wood and and it's not obvious to me it's going to be better if every artisan mm -hmm. but but it's obviously bad if the people who make nice things in wood can't communicate with the people who make stuff in glass well enough to put it together to make a window <laughs> you know so you sort of actually you almost need you need a complex sort of ecology where we need specialists and i hate this kind of um you know sometimes we're prone to saying oh you know disciplinary silos are really bad no they're really really good I mean, they're really good. If you want to get the human genome sequenced, you don't want some guys who, you know, are a bit good at genetics, but they do a bit of sociology too. You just no. need them to do genetics, right? <laughs> but then you need a, yeah, but you need a whole lot of other people who can then understand that. What's the social implications of that? What would be, you know, so, so the, it's, it's like we need, you know, I think academia needs more than academics. It also needs sort of a, a second tier of people who are prepared to say, you know, I can understand enough about that to see why it might be important. And it seems to me to relate to a question over there in this other discipline. Um, you, you need all of that too. So I think the short answer is, you know, we need academic disciplines, they've evolved for a reason, um, but they don't, they mustn't become too insular because of course then we're lost, you know, what's the point? Um, and also we, 
I mean, I think the main thing that I would say is our, tr our thinking traps us. It traps us into thinking something's either biological or it's social, or, you know, it's either nature or it's nurture and stuff. And these are almost never the right, these dichotomies are almost never the right answer. They, they just never are. They, they're not even, they, they, it's not that they turn out to be the wrong answer, it's that they completely misspecified what the problem was in the first place, but they're just attractive ways of, of thinking. I mean, it's a bit like you were saying earlier, you know, left or right, you know, is it fairness or is it efficiency? And it's like, well, maybe. Oh. Maybe it's both, you know, maybe you've just got to think about this in the right way. So I think that would be my, my take that we, we should have disciplines, but not be in silos. And we should try not to be trapped by conventional ways of thinking. Yeah, I, I love how you put that. I think you're an absolute brilliant exemplar of someone who actually is able to do this. A lot of academics can't. Like they try and then they fail to. They can be a brilliant, like say psychologist and then go into politics and not so great or vice versa and these things. I mean, so there, there's a question of, um, I think intellectual honesty that needs to underlie a project like that where you really need to be willing to go deep into a discipline in order to go across later. And you need to be but, able but, to go deep into multiple, it seems, or at least be able to collaborate with people who can go deep. Yeah, collaborate with people. And, but I think that the main problem in academia is people don't like to say that they don't know. <laughs> Well, they don't understand, right? And and that's because we all of the incentive structures in academia. You know, you have to be, you have to, you know, write these papers that say things with great certainty and say how novel they are and say they're going to, you know, write your grant application saying you're going to solve all the problems in the world and stuff. And you know, probably you don't. Probably most things we try well, aren't really going to solve any problems and they're going to be could turn out to be dead ends. And it turns out that you didn't really understand something right. I mean, almost always in academia, when someone says, you know. Theory X is totally wrong. Theory Y is right. It turns out they haven't really understood Theory X and mm. Theory X turned out to have some things in it that were quite good. And Theory Y is probably not quite what it's crapped out to be, you know. And I don't think that's a depressing conclusion, you know. I think it's just saying it's very difficult to have the bravery to say, look, I don't really know. I don't really understand how this works. You know, can, can you help me think about it? Yeah, I think we uh, need to have a genuine commitment to truth. Yeah. Well, I know, but truth is hard, right? And and yeah. in a way, you know, all of the incentives in academia are to publish, to publish in high-profile places, to to be certain, you know, to say I've got my sort of way of looking at things that that, that you know that works. And you know, science has been a tremendously successful human endeavor. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, but it's often been at its most creative, just at the limits of what it can really do. And actually, it's when people have come along saying, well, you know, the whole motion of the planets thing, it doesn't really seem to work. <laughs> it's, mm. We were kind of wrong about that. So it's, it's actually being wrong that's the most interesting thing about science. Exactly. But, 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 but as, as humans, we're insecure. You know, we want to be right. And we want to be mm. people to say, oh, well done. You know, have a pat on the back. Yeah, good for you. You're, you're right. You've solved this problem. What would an incentive structure within academia that actually um, facilitated truth seeking instead of disincentivizing in the ways that you describe look like? I think that's a great question. I think it's really, really hard. I just don't think we've solved that one yet. I think that um, uh, I think that uh, I mean, there's a lot of talk about this at the moment, and you can find all kinds of stuff on the web about it. And there's a very good book called Science Fictions by student Stuart Ritchie that's just come out, which talks a bit about this. But the truth is we don't yet know how to accord value to people other than by the sort of certainties they appear to have contributed to hmm. the literature. And this um, does incentivize them, you know, to cut corners, to, you know, to claim a certainty they may not hold, and even rarely, but in the limiting cases, actually to fabricate data and stuff like that, which turns out there have yeah. been quite a few cases of in science. So we really need, we really need to not do that. Yeah. But, so I think there's a lot of talk about how we need to work together in consortia. Um, so instead of you know, me running my little study here and you running your little study over there, what if 100 of us all over the world got together and ran a really big study that's gonna definitively answer some question? Now that's a lot, you know, it's like Oscar Wilde said about socialism. It's going to take a lot of evenings, right? You know, because mm -hmm. We've got to spend all our time agreeing on what the experiment is, which getting 100 academics to agree is largely impossible. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, you, so it's going to be hard. And in the meantime, you know, I don't get my three little publications. You don't get your three little publications. We, you know, we have to wait until this great thing comes out. And then I'm just one name on a whole list of names in there. So how do I really apply for promotion? How do I get tenure? 
if I've been contributing in this nebulous way to this higher framework. And I just don't think we've solved that. I, I, I just don't know how we, we, we do it. Um, maybe academics need to be more like artists in your universal basic income world, right? I mean, mm. maybe they don't need, maybe we need to not have them do it for a living. <laughs> you know, that sounds crazy, but um, I mean, I always think about grant applications, right? We spend all this time writing this, this, um, these grant applications. The evidence is that generally grant funders don't get this right, right? You, know, you know, in terms of choosing what would be the optimal, mm -hmm. from a social value point of view, what the optimal projects to fund, it's not clear that we get it right. Because we're, you know, grant panels are attracted by all the flashy things of this person's got a million publications before and they've had loads of grants before and they're a good egg and they're at a prestigious university and, you know, they speak well and all of that stuff, which turned out to be terrible reasons for giving people money. Um, <laughs> so what if we just took all of the funding, you know, and just divided it by the number of people who met a basic kind of... Um, uh, you know, exam for competence and having something interesting to want to find out about the world. What if we just divided it up? You know, I mean, it's not completely nuts because many of the most important things in the history of science have really struggled for years to get funded. Whilst mm -hmm. things that turn out to be utterly uninformative are funded every day of the week. <laughs> and that's just because it's a difficult decision problem. It's really hard to tell. It's hard to get away from our groupthink and our prejudices. So what if we actually said, we give some of it out by lottery? Or we just give, um, you know, everyone a certain chunk of money. They might have to apply for more under some circumstances, but we just give it out. And let academics be more like um, artists in a universal basic income world. They're doing their stuff, and at the end of the day, they're not doing it because they need it to subsist and to have a roof over their head, you know. But they're doing it because they're interested in it and, you know, think it might tell us something about the world. And then we let the ideas decide. Mm. You know, we don't have prodigious prestigious fancy journals and you know low ranking journals we put all this stuff on the web and we try and let the ideas decide you know be nice as well is if we just got rid of prestigious universities and all the universities were <laughs> of equal quality and they were all either free or affordable and the same price yeah well that's i mean again that's an interesting thing and i, I think that the i think in this country the hierarchy of universities is perhaps a break on creativity because you spend a lot of time scrabbling to get into the good ones, whether you're a student or a mm -hmm. faculty member. And, 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 you know, in a sense, the business of what we're doing, which yeah. is trying to think about the world thoughtfully, it's sort of distraction. You think, oh, I've got to get a paper in this journal so mm -hmm. I can move to this better university. I think so it's on. actually way worse than that. Because I, like, I come at this as a, from the standpoint of a high school teacher, right? And so I see directly the impacts of the university application process on kids and what it does. And I think they're really, really, really destructive. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a total waste of time, for one. Uh, second, like their, their entire like two years is spent just like focused on this. And then so the range of options that like one might have in trying to figure out what to do with their lives is really narrowed by mm -hmm. by the options that are dictated through university programs and, and in particular by the best universities so if you're one of the if you're a, at a kid who's trying to get into an elite school and most of them are like everything you're thinking about is about that and it's incredibly stressful and I, I think it really undermines the learning and there's a lot of evidence that it does that and there's a lot of evidence that uh, anxiety and depression rates for kids, including in the best schools in the world are increasing, not decreasing. And I really, really strongly believe that the university system is structuring most of the incentives in the rest of schooling as well. Yeah. And that this is one of the things that needs to be changed somehow. Yeah, no, and I really see that when you, when students come through to us from the school system and I, you know, they say things like, you know, what do we have to do to get a good mark? And I say, why do you want a good mark? You're here now, you know, what, 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 do you, what, do you, what do you want out of this, right? You're the, you're, you're, the, you're, the, you're the driver of this particular experience, right? I can try and sort of throw things in your way that might be interesting to you, but, you know, I, it's not really about how, and they say, how hard do I have to study? Otherwise, you have to study as hard as you like or not. I mean, you know, it's absolutely fine. You know, you're, what do you want out of this? And that this is sort of a baffling, that intrinsic motivation has been really knocked out of them. Yeah. Um, and you have to almost kind of introduce it as a slightly outlandish idea. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is just interesting, you know, maybe it doesn't really matter how, you know, you're not trying to achieve anything by it. And I think well, the problem is that universities serve multiple functions that historically have been kind of all combined in one institution. Mm. 
and it's not really clear to me that they, those functions need to go together. So one is credentialing, right? A big part of what universities do is they provide a credential for the labor market. They, you know, someone wants to say, you know, give me this prestigious job, oh, I need a degree from Harvard or Oxford or whatever. And that's really nothing to do with actually understanding the material. I mean, it's just to do with demonstrating that, you know, I meet certain certain bar and then the university giving you a certain credential and so on. Um, so that's one thing they, they sort of historically did. Another thing was to be communities of scholars, and that's, you know, a very good and important function. But that's actually a kind of slightly different function. And they're all, as universities have grown, they're just all sort of there. And this is an unexamined situation what are they for and in a world where increasingly lots of stuff is available online and so on why are they in particular geographical places why do they admit people in certain ways why do their programs have a certain length i mean who knows you know these are just things that have historically evolved and i'm sure there'll be lots of other ways of doing it i think yeah. there are many good things about what we do i think Absolutely. moving away to a college living there with a cohort of people you know like-minded all of that's great you know but i we could think a lot about what these institutions are for and whether this is the only way of kind of imagining them really. Yeah, I think they do need to be reimagined. You, one of the books you, you write on almost every topic, it seems. I was looking at your Google Scholar list. It's like, this guy's all over the place, like, well, but yeah, in a very I, good way. I think, well, no, I, I'm not sure that that's true. I think possibly Google Scholar is all over the place. I think that oh. like some things that were written by someone who's called Daniel or someone who's called Nettle, but not necessarily both of those you know, okay. it pops up in my Google Scholar. So that may be, you know. Okay. So I, I definitely haven't read all of your work. Algorithms are omnipotent, not me, you know. Okay. <laughs> I was reading uh, your more, more or most recent book, Hanging on to the Edges, Essays on Science, Society, and Academic Life. And I, it just totally sucked me in. But I didn't get to the last third of it, where you were talking about, it seems like you're talking mostly about kind of like the academic life. Yeah. And what that has been like. I, at one point, was kind of like obsessed with being an academic. Then I realized I actually hate a lot of like how I feel when I'm doing academic work. At times, I love it. Absolutely adore it. And there's other times where I just feel really lonely. And it's kind of awful. And uh, so I didn't go into that route. And I've got professor friends, one of whom uh, just became a full professor. And their first decision was to never write an academic journal article again. Because oh, can you do that? Yeah. Yeah, apparently. Well. I'm not going to say their name and it's a secret, but that's the goal because they're read on average by seven people. And I imagine that that kind of um, lack of impact uh, for somebody like in academics are brilliant. It must be troubling or, or difficult at times. What is your take on the academic life? Would you tell people to pursue this life? Well, firstly, I think it can be many, many different things. Hmm. Yeah. And there are lots of ways of being an academic. I would, I would consider you an academic. Well, here we are talking about ideas and you're making an impact on the world, in your case, via a podcast. But I mean, I don't see any fundamental distinction there. You know, I, I think so for me to be an academic is to be somehow committed to the life of the mind, to the idea that um, that ideas are important and there should be a social conversation about ideas. So how you do that, there are an, there is an infinity of ways of how you do that. And I think many of the most imaginative academics turn out to have some, you know, quite odd way of doing that, right? That they have a podcast or they turn out to you know, make experimental films or do public lectures in pubs or, you know, they, they do different things. Because um, uh, you're right, a lot of academic papers are not read by many people. And I think you need... So for me, uh, you know, I've struggled with it over the years and I've, I haven't always found it easy because I don't, I don't, I, I don't think I'm a great, um, uh, you know, advert for the sort of solitary scholar who doesn't care if seven people or, you know, or six people are reading the paper. I, I, I need, you know, I enjoy a bit more interaction than that. But actually, there are so many ways these days, you know, and um, if you can free your mind from the insecurity of you know god will i get tenure will i get my next grant will i next get me you know whatever and just think this is kind of pretty cool you know you can talk to people about things that you care about <laughs> and sometimes they listen and mostly they don't you know but sometimes they listen and and there are so many ways these days there are there are blogs and there are you know my, my last two books are published with an online publisher so they're free to download for anyone in the world and people in ethiopia download them i don't know what they make of them <laughs> I hope they make something useful. But how cool is it that someone yeah, is amazing? 
you know, some, some university that's probably, you know, got very limited resources for scholarship can think about what I'm thinking about what's happening in Newcastle and, you know, they, I, what they make of it, I have no idea. I'd love to know, but but that's incredibly cool. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. It's very cool. And the open access movement in academia, I think, is something that really needs to be pushed forward more. Oh. These paywalls drive me nuts. And, like, I don't want to spend hundreds of dollars to be able to download an article just to read it, you know? But it's, like, more than, it's worse than that. It's a huge dead loss to the university sector, right? Because... Mm. Uh, we, we pay thousands of pounds to these publishers, you know, or, or hundreds of thousands. Now, of course, there is a cost to publishing things in, in, a, in a, a permanent, verifiable format. You know, you, you have to keep web servers going and so on, and there's a cost to that. But really, it could be a fraction of what it is. And, and just from an efficiency of knowledge transfer point of view, you know, if you could just, if everything was just searchable online, I mean, in this day and age, uh, really, we'd all just be much better off. We could save thousands of pounds per academic for, on subscriptions and so on. It would just make, it would make teaching so much easier. It would make research much, so much more efficient. So we need to get there. But one of the problem, the reasons we've not been able to is that um, it's not actually coming back to, so here's me being all neoliberal on you. It's not an efficient market. Mm-hmm. It's not an efficient market because, you know, I understand we should all be publishing you know, in some open access archive. But if you say, oh, but Daniel, you know, your next paper could be in science or nature, which is a paywall journal, but, you know, transformative for my career, uh, do I have the strength to say, no, <laughs> I will not. <laughs> I right. will not, you know, no, no one's that strong, right? So individually, we're not that strong. We, we just succumb to the status incentive. And that's why you're only going to solve these problems with collective action. Yeah, and I think we need to reimagine our institutions so that they have humanizing incentives. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, you see that from when you get hired by a university now. You look at the kind of things they care about for their bottom line. They don't care about, you know, were you a good colleague? Did you always have an hour for your colleagues and and your students and stuff? That's sort of not really there, you know, in the... Um, in, in the sort of hierarchy of things that gets valued. Now, I don't know how you value that because it's so hard to document and verify, but um, uh, it is a very important topic, you know. Yeah, I think it's worth thinking about a lot more. If you don't mind, I'd love to ask you just one final question. Yeah. So, because like you're kind of one of the best people I could ever ask this to. So let's say you were to live for 400 years and you had the ability to run one longitudinal study with perfectly assured methodological accuracy that would last, say, 100 years or even 200 years. What do you think you would try to figure out? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I don't know if I had a good answer, but um, let me so let me divert your question by telling you about an experiment we tried to do in the Starlings. That I would love sure. to it's completely unethical and totally impossible. <laughs> so we took um, we, we we had an experiment where we decided to raise these starlings from birth to adulthood and completely characterize everything that happened to each individual. Now. You can only do this in a really restricted way. So we had to raise them in, in, in a lab, and I'm not really suggesting that for humans, but you know, it would be too unethical in all kinds of ways. But we knew for these only 32 individuals, so that's all we could do, you know, everything that had happened to them in, the, in their life. And we made it different for the different individuals, right? of course, so that's why you would do it. And then, then we can ask what's the, what was the impact of that down the line. And so one of the things that, yeah, the sort of revolution in human sciences is we've got incredibly good at measuring human biology, you know, the genotype, we've sequenced the genome, we can measure the proteins, we can measure the cells, all of that stuff. But what we can't yet measure is the environment. How do we, how do we characterize what happened to me to make me me and what happened to you? Make me? I mean, we have these rubbish measures like what was the average income of your parents or you know, of your neighborhood or some questionnaire or something, but those are really rubbish. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they are. At best, they could just tell us what word you fit into a, a statistical average. Yeah, right. It's we need an individualized. Of the stuff of. you happen to be able to remember, you know, of the stuff that could be quantified. I mean, it's really poor. So compared to the incredible precision with which we can study the organism, because you can now do some, you know, incredible thing to looking at the methylation of my entire genome or the proteins that I produce or whatever. You study the organism in beautiful detail, but the environment, we, we, we've hardly begun to start. You know, we can measure your socioeconomic status. We can measure, like, 
the size of your house or your income or whatever, but can we measure the really the things that impinge on you causally in an important way? And the answer is that we can't. You know, we could I'll give you a questionnaire on the quality of your relationships or something, but it's going to be pretty crude. So I would love it if one day when we when we looked at the human organism, we we understood the environment, the, the sort of what impinges on, on the individual in the same with the same kind of precision that we can currently understand the inner states of the individual. And that would be totally amazing. And I think lots of things like um, you know, questions of sort of the roles of roles of nurture and culture in particular ways that are just utterly obscure at the moment because our measures are so poor might actually we might start finally beginning to make some you know if you want to know what affects your political attitudes or your you know health outcomes or whatever you know we might finally begin to make some progress on those so it wouldn't necessarily have to be a 400 year longitudinal study it would just it would it'd have to be different from what we have now in some way or other do you think big data could ever be employed to measure that kind of thing? Or do you think e- even in, in, in the process of doing that, we'd kind of create like a dystopian nightmare society that we don't well, want I'm and sure, we wouldn't I'm get the right sure. answers anyway? I'm not sure about the dystopian nightmare, but I'm, I'm quite into small data, hmm. which, because um, the thing about big data is it's never the data you want. You only really accept it because there's so much of it. So people say things like, you know, I want to understand about, you know, how Americans respond to upturns in the economic cycle. So I, I kind of stri- algorithmically strip a load of stuff out of all of the tweets that they emit. It's like, this is a terrible way of doing it because only some people tweet and then they only tweet certain things and they, you know, the, 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 what, the information you strip out of your tweets is really error prone and all of that. So it's really terrible. The only reason we do it is there's like 100 million tweets a year. And when you've got 100 million of something that's really bad, that starts to be kind of good because, it's <laughs> but, but actually it's, ne- you know, it's never really the thing you want. It's always some proxy. It's some mm-hmm. proxy that has flaws and you only put up with it because there's so much of it that it's exciting. So I'm, I actually say something a bit different. Like, you know, what about if we studied even a much smaller number of people, but really measured things well, really understood how to measure the, the, the experiences that impinge on them. I don't know how you would do it. So I don't think big data alone, will solve anything unless we really get good at deciding what we want to measure and measuring it well. Mm, makes sense. Is there any last uh, comments you'd like to make about anything? No, I think this was great. Thank you. Oh, wonderful. I, thank you so much. I, I think it, you're a very, very, very interesting thinker. And honestly, I'd like to encourage you to be more of a public intellectual. Thank you. I really think you should. I think I think you should go into the into the pubs with a mask and, and start giving lectures or maybe wait a few months when things <laughs> yeah. are better. But like getting out there more and sharing your ideas and making them digestible and you're really good at that uh, is important. Thank so, you. Well, it's been a pleasure to share them with you today. Anyway, so. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really oh. appreciate it, Dr. Nettle. Right. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I hope you have a wonderful day there. And I hope the COVID situation improves. Uh, thank you. Thank your you. country and at your university really, really rapidly. Great. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful day and I'll be in touch. Bye. See ya. And that was episode number 13 of the World Teacher Podcast. Massive gratitude to Daniel Nettle. It was just such a pleasure speaking to him. His mind is absolutely incredible. To the extent that we can all be more like him, the world would be a much better place. But again, it's really his heart and his character, much more than his IQ, that I respect so much. He fights for good, he fights for justice, he fights for truth and love. And through it all, he is of great service to humanity. May we all be strong enough to do the same. Thanks for listening.